This episode is brought to you by Fooley Gemstones. He was a very patient man. He thought that French decorative art should move gradually, not radical change. Although he made radical change. Yeah, he did, but he thought that that was, I think he thought that was enough. <laughs> but no one could come after him and make radical change. Yeah, well, he, he was also a pretty good businessman too. <laughs> I'm Carol Holton, the voice of jewellery. Welcome to If Jewels Could Talk. I'm an author and broadcaster, and the woman who initiated the role of jewellery editor at magazines like Tatler and Vogue. This is a podcast for everyone, for people who do like jewellery, for people who don't realise they like jewellery, and anyone intrigued by fascinating facts, new ideas and forgotten histories. So join me as I tell sparkly tales and meet all sorts of people, delving into four centuries of jewellery culture, and investigate what's happening now. Welcome back to If Jewels Could Talk, and I'm so happy that we have a sparkling new season ahead of us. We'll be here every second Thursday from today, and I've been traveling to Paris, to Los Angeles, to track down the best stories for you. Today, we're kicking off with a story from New York. We are going to be talking about the Art Nouveau movement, and specifically the genius of the movement, that is René Lalique. To seek beauty was a more worthy aim for him than the display of luxury. This coincides with a spectacular exhibition at La Vieille Russie in New York of his drawings. Not only are they just drawings by his hand, he's actually annotated on them by the side, as we'll find out later in his handwriting. And this is on at the New York Gallery of La Fierre until March the 15th. So I am delighted to welcome the two experts behind this exhibition who've been studying the man, his life and his work between them for about 80 years. So first of all, I'd like to welcome Adam Patrick, who is the director and manager of La Vie Russie, who's studied Lalique and sold Lalique jewellery for over 30 years. Adam, thank you very much for joining us. That's a great pleasure. Thanks for having us. And um, with Patrick, I'd like to welcome Mark Waller, who's a collector and dealer of René Lalique. He's the author of The Art of René Lalique and has helped mount exhibitions um, at places like the Museum of Modern Art in Tokyo. He's contributed to exhibitions at the Louvre in Paris, the Smithsonian Institution, and lender of the touring exhibition Artistic Luxury, Fabergé, Tiffany and Lalique at the Cleveland Museum of Art. Mark, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. So in 1900, the French critic Léonce Benedict wrote that Lalique was the true innovator, the one who tore down the old barriers, overturned entrenched traditions and created a new language. So Mark, can you explain to us what did he mean by that? What was the new language? Lalique was a revolutionary in bringing a new style and new materials to the jewellery and bijouterie uh, markets. They're two slightly different things. Uh, jewellery is uh, precious stones, met uh, metals. Um, bijouterie is kind of costume jewellery or, or less less valuable. But the, the situation was since the... Um, discovery of the diamond mines in South Africa, 
that the women had been bedecked with diamonds and there was kind of it was it was so extreme that there was kind of it was almost comical anyway Lalique decided to um and had the opportunity to change people's taste by using different materials and you really his skill as a craftsman and a designer was the thing that changed the style because his ideas were so radical his materials were so unusual that people couldn't help but notice and all these heavy diamond bedecked uh women wanted something new and avant-garde and uh, monsieur lalique provided them the opportunity and it was really down to his skill as a draftsman and a craftsman that allowed this um this change to happen uh, the, every, all the other jewelers were kind of stuck in the past, you know, putting more and more and more diamonds and, you know, onto everything. So by the other jewelers, you're meaning some of the big maisons, the big French maisons. Exactly. Yeah. The big, the, the big old names didn't change quick enough. Lalique produced something new and people took to it and ran because it was beautiful, new and exciting. But not easy to make. The technical... Um, virtuosity was kind of the extraordinary thing about it. Yeah, and it? the other thing that was really remarkable about Lalique, he had no prejudice about precious metals and this, that and the other. He actually uh, used anything that was that worked to fit with his vision and his understanding of uh, what he was producing, which was intrinsically, totally dedicated and origin, had an origin in nature. He's observ- his ability to observe nature was yeah. extraordinary. Adam, what was the atmosphere like at the end of the 19th century? Can you describe what it was like when he tried to emerge and get people to get behind this new style? I would have thought the feeling would have been quite refreshing um, because people were, it, it, it was a completely different feel as, as Mark was just saying, it was getting away from diamonds and sapphires and it was really getting back to nature and, and I think it was just such a new and different thing. But it was a time of great change, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, and, you know, just to change tax a little bit, the only other jeweller we said earlier, you know, the houses like Boucheron and, and Cartier and all of those pieces were predominantly about big stones. Lalique was very, very different. And just to bring in Fabergé, he was also the gentleman. He was using different coloured enamels, different types of stones. He, he, I think, was the, the only other goldsmith or jeweller who was using materials that weren't intrinsically valuable. And I think that that was such a refreshing thing to people. And they could do such different things with all of these different enamel colours or all these different materials that your average jewellers couldn't necessarily do with diamonds and sapphires and other just sort of precious stones. I think that the, the sort of palette of things that people could create opened a whole world of possibilities. And I think people did, you know, they loved it and ran with it and enjoyed it. But do you think the atmosphere, as a century comes to an end, the sort of fin de siècle and the belle époque, that, that people were kind of um, hungry for change in every area of their life. And so transformation became a big feature of his work. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely true. And the turn of the century, it's an important time for reflection. And, you know, Lalique recognised that and produced something new and exciting. Um, it's, uh, it was just time, I feel. And he had the skill and the expertise to do something about it. There was the biggest exhibition 
that the world had ever seen at that time with a gate of something like 53 million in the 1900 exhibition in Paris, which is really what gave Paris the name, the City of Lights. It was huge and the gate was enormous. And that was enough that one exhibition was like the Great Exhibition in London, but it was enough to get the, with 53 million gate, was enough to change the world. And where Lalique uh, stalled out in the most extraordinary stand with bronze women and silk and these wonderful jewels, curiously and amusingly, right opposite Fabergé. They faced each other. And there's a famous print by Vallotton of women three or four uh, layers deep trying to get a glimpse of the window, the vitrine de la Lique. Really? So it made that sort of impact, not only in Paris, but around the world? Absolutely. Um, but it wasn't an overnight success. He had worked for it, hadn't he? Uh, he had worked for it. He, he had studied um, for it. He had gone through um, a great deal of academic training at l'École des Arts Décréatifs in Paris. Uh, he had met a partner called Monsieur Briand who uh, they set up business together and yeah he 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 had it did not come easily but he created one a jewel of a swallow um, beautifully observed which was um, and he showed it to other jewelers and the other jewelers loved it and accepted it and bought a lot of them and you find the same Lalique jewel with different marks on it and so they you know, different houses copied it or made their own version or bought them from Lalique and marked them themselves. But it's a beautiful swallow um, with its peculiar and extraordinary, well, extraordinarily well-observed movement. And that was his first big commercial success. And then at the um, Exposition Universelle, you were talking about, and these women cramming to have a look. It was the sort of fantasy objects, wasn't it? They were sort of hybrid creatures, bats, star-studded night skies, things that people hadn't seen before, and all about these sort of themes of metamorphosis, of change, wasn't it? Yeah, and I just think it was just so unusual and people hadn't seen anything like it, and and that's what people clamoured for. And I think he was, you know, the right person at the right time. So, Mark, when did you start collecting these drawings? I worked in Paris at the weekends for many years and I you know I knew of them because they a lot of them were illustrated in a beautiful book by Sigrid Barton who was the curator at the Belle Reve Museum in Zurich. Um so I knew of them but I never found any on the market and then suddenly I uh, I got offered a, sm- a small collection of um his work and in amongst them was a perfect, beautiful parchment drawing like the ones that are on show at the Vieille Russi. And um, I had it, I was very excited about it, but there were a lot of preparatory work from Le Col de, des Arts Décoratifs and, and they must have come from one of his artisans, I guess. Anyway, I had this piece in the jewellery, um, in, in the cabinets in the gallery, and the um, manager of the La Lique boutique on Madison Avenue walked in and he saw it and he had never seen one you know for on the market for sale and um bless his cotton socks he (laughs) dug deep and bought it uh and seeing his enthusiasm for it made me kind of plug in that these things were extremely rare on the market because this guy could see a lot of stuff and, um, you know, forever after, as I was looking for them. And uh, all of a sudden, much later on, 
um, a catalogue dropped through the gallery post box with 180 of them in it. I mean, I'd never seen anything like it. So what year was that? It was about 1996, Six. something around there. Six, yeah. And so where had they come from? Oh, that's auctioneers are very tight-lipped about where they came from. Um, I expect it was from the family, the sheer quantity of them. And they were divided around the family. And Marie-Claude had a big collection. She's the uh, granddaughter of René Lalique. And uh, she had a big collection of them. And uh, they just a lot appeared. Anyway, a consortium of knowledgeable collectors. You know, I was on site, so to speak. It was a short hop from London to Paris. So everybody asked me to look at them because I kind of knew, knew the, the man's hand well. And then we graded them into high quality and lesser qualities. And then we sort of got stuck in and bought a large quantity of them. And it was way, I mean, these things were making five, six, seven times the estimate. The estimates were, you know, fairly low, but, you know, they were making big money. So like what? So what did they go for? 15, 16, 18,000, you know, sort of marks so we got stuck in got up we're thrilled to bits got i felt we got a really good selection of them and then about four five days after we'd paid our bill and brought them all back the, the auctioneers <laughs> produced another catalogue <laughs> <laughs> oh and you had to have those too <laughs> yeah. so we were dug really deep and waited for that and then after that guess what <laughs> <laughs> another one um, and that was the end of that but, and the last sale was full of not such great things so do, did he do a drawing for each jewel oh yeah and the amazing thing is and if you understand his working process if you have the original jewel and you have the design if you place the original jewel on the design they're exact I mean the scale of them is the same the colours are very close and, you know, you obviously you can't see the back of them, but they are really, really faithfully copied from the original designs. That's amazing. I guess some jewellers don't work like that. I mean, Adam, how important is it for a great jeweller to be an artist as well? I don't think you're going to be a great jeweller if you're not a great artist. I think that's what makes these designs or drawings as interesting as they are, because without those, there are no jewels. I mean, this is this is him sitting down, probably doing what he did best, because I'm sure he did quite a lot of really good things. We know he did. But to sit down and envision these things and, and come up with the designs and think, oh, you know what, I'm going to use a, a stag beetle for this hair comb. I mean, you know, first of all, that's like, oh, and then, and then he's got to make these stag beetles into a usable piece of beautiful jewellery in carved horn. I mean, it, it's just, I think they are probably as important, if not more important sometimes than the actual piece of jewellery itself. I mean, it, it's just that without, without these, the, the, there is nothing. And he's one of the greatest, or if not the greatest Art Nouveau jewellers out there. And it's just basically his, his thought process, his, his designs. And the, these pieces are unique by the hand of the man. They are the point of inspiration by this incredible imagination and great talent, artistic talent in making them because they're rather special. And, you know, that's it. They are the point of inspiration. So they are original. On a few pieces of jewellery, they were so successful that he actually produced more than one of them. The big, important pieces are usually singly and unique. 
But some of these things, he was such a big name that he offered, I think there were a hundred pressings, not such great quality ones, but sold through Illustration. You know, you could you could buy one of these original Lalique jewels uh, through illustra- a competition and you know, a kind of lottery in Illustration. And, uh, you know, a lot of those sold out. So those we see a, a lot of. But the jewellery, that uh, the, the show that has got mostly unique pieces... And give you some idea. Some odd, if one or two of these pieces arrived at you know the big auction houses, oh. they could make a million dollars. Yeah. I mean, these are important things. So if the designs are just worth, which which is very low. I mean, just ten percent of the original. You know, it it, it it they're great value. And the other thing is that you, know, you if you have one of those million dollar necklaces, you put the design with it. And hey, presto, you have a museum exhibit. You have the whole story. Did he never delegate his design process? No. 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 He worked and worked and worked. Ideas, design, thoughts. He, he, I, had his, I had his notebooks. And he'd, he'd be sketching a fish that he was going to eat for, for dinner. He's playing around, looking, designing, working, trying to find things. Um, and uh, he did not delegate the design process. He always had, it's clear, he was, it was the final design that he had done that went to the Smiths, of which he had 40, working nonstop, you know, creating these things in a marvellous house, an imposing workshop residence in Paris. And the Smiths were very, very uh, qualified, very skilled. He had one of the great enamelers, a man called Eugene Foyatre, who supported him, who gave him new technology to play with. But no, it was Lali had the final say on everything. And even later on with his glassware, although he had great uh, craftsmen uh, working away, he had the final say until he passed in 1945. So his workshop was on the corner of the Avenue L'Opera? One of his workshops was there. Then he moved to a big house which he had specially built in the style of Fabergé's Remise. Its position was important because it seems a bit lonely now, but it was at the time in front of one of the a massive greenhouse uh, construction like the Grand Palais. That was like a a pair left over from the 1900 exhibition. So his remise and atelier was right opposite the most important art exhibition hall in Paris, where small names like Van Gogh and Georges Seurat were shown for the first time. And all the collectors, the Russian oligarch were there. All, you know, people looking for modern art were gathered in those great remises, uh, looking at modern art shows where post-impressionism really came into the fore. And I think on some of the drawings, you have his actual handwriting sort of giving notes about what to the goldsmiths, I imagine. Yeah, he wrote little notes and I'm so used to his writing now. And he's, he has a two or three separate scripts, but on, uh, on the designs he used uh, more than often ink on um, and just gave direction about which colour of the enamel, on what type of material, and a few sort of guides that, you know, really fine points that they didn't know already. Um, but he was also, I mean, another trick I heard that he used was that he kept his jewellers, his smiths kind of occupied and using both sides of their brain, using crosswords, using the hands for work, 
and then using your mind for crosswords. And do you think that, I mean, you said you owned his, his, his notebooks. Do you still own those? No, I don't. Um, they're in a, a museum in Japan. There's a big, uh, massive exhibition of Lalique permanent in Japan. Um, the man went through through the card buying them. And now there's a Musée Lalique in Alsace-Lorraine as well, where a lot of the, another collection of these uh, designs, the ones that kind of came with the company, are also held and displayed on, on occasion. Do you think the drawings with his notes make you feel closer to the man than the actual pieces of jewellery? Well, me personally, I, I love the point of inspiration. You know, they're really historical documents and they're important. Yeah, and I think the point of inspiration is is the beginning of everything. I mean, as much as his, the works that he actually creates are as, as good as they are, there's something to be said for the for the drawings. Yeah. And what pieces of jewellery, Adam, do you have um, as part of the exhibition? Right now we have a green glass necklace um, with two opposing wasps on each panel. Um, we have a ring by Briançon. And we also have a pleacajour and enamel pendant with a drop pearl, like a stylized, flat, uh, stylized leaves. And that's it at the moment. It's not the easiest thing to find or the easiest thing to pay for once you've found it. Yeah, um, you know, and they, they very, very rarely come onto the market. Yeah. Interesting pieces. There's always a few pieces out there, but, you know, those are more important, the more interesting pieces. You know, people, you know, either love so much and they just don't want to sell them. Uh, you know, they really are collected. So there's, there's, there's a limited amount on the market. But, um, Mark, you've never wanted to collect the pieces you've been more interested to collect the artwork. <laughs> I'd love to collect the pieces. <laughs> but they're mostly the in vaults in Geneva. <laughs> yes. No, yeah. I, I mean, you know, an academic's collection uh, turned up in an auction a while back. She wrote um, from Slave to Cyrene, uh, uh, one of the first theses on Lally, and her collection turned up, you know, 60 years later. And, so, and you know, a, a little you know, necklace or a, a collar or a bracelet. And they're all in the hundreds of thousands. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. adorable, uh, but they are huge money. So you've researched his life hugely. Yeah. And have you travelled around France? Have you gone to... Um, he was brought up in Champagne countryside, wasn't he? So have you travelled there and seen where he grew up? Yeah, I know the Champagne district. Um, I've actually slept in the be- in a bed in the room that he died. No. <laughs> yes, no. I have. That's, that's an enthusiast. That's um, gone a bit far. But... Yeah, well, no, I mean... It, where no, was not, that? Where did he consciously. die? Uh, a friend of mine um, rented the apartment above Suzanne. Uh, it was a beautiful apartment. But it was uh, one of these rooms was actually a business office, but it was just remarkable. It had these applied roses flying up. So it was obviously very dear to him. They're beautiful in that house, in his house. It was extraordinary. In Paris. In Paris, yeah. Uh, so what were your recollections of um, going around to where he grew up in Champagne? Nature. I mean, you have to understand this man was the most extraordinary observer of nature. And I don't mean at a glance. I mean, he really understood how flowers grew, how branches moved and separated, how thorns looked. I mean, his detailed work of nature, which is what he studied and drew for the first part of his career, were exquisitely observed. His father was a man, a craftsman, 
who made something called Palais Royal, which was fine goods, luxury goods, made for the English and the tourists who visited Paris and sold around the boutiques of Palais Royal. So he had an introduction to fine quality workmanship from a very early age. It's recorded that he actually sold his early drawings on ivory sheets, you know, in the local market um, as a very young man. So he was he was used to this concept of being able to sell his his drawings and craftsmanship. And when you see that and his observations, you understand that he just had the gift of seeing. Like Rembrandt Bugatti, he caught things at a typical movement for the animal or the flower or the growth of a, a plant. He caught the essence of them. And that's what is so remarkable. His roses are sharp, you know, and thorny. His bees look like they buzz, you know. His wasps are aggressive and kind of frightening. You know, he got the essence of these, uh, of nature. And he didn't just, as you were talking about at the end of the Belle Epoque, go for the traditional motifs of the beautiful rose or the... Um, the the flowers that people think of that are made into jewels. He went for unusual specimens, didn't he? Yeah. I mean, it was willow catkins and orchids that were kind of new at that moment, weren't they? Um, stems, seeds, buds, things, uh, hazelnuts. Yeah. I mean, who had done hazelnuts in jewellery? The plants and things which he copied and used, they'd never been looked at in jewellery before which again goes back to the whole this whole new sort of refreshing and unusual pieces that he was doing. I found a quote, actually, um, from the um, 19th century, Henri Vervet, the French jewellery of the 19th century, the writer, and he said, Lalique spent his day sitting at this work table, a paintbrush or roughing chisel in his hand. Around him on every piece of furniture and in every corner was a constant profusion of the flowers he had loved from his childhood their delicate colours and elegant forms analysed by him with exquisite taste. Yeah, that's, and that's, Vevey is one of the great you know, chroniclers yeah. of that jewellery of that period. The book is a, is, a, is a Bible. But yeah, to understand that and all the drawings, all the photographs of drawings of Lalique, he's always like at work and near a drawing, uh, at, near a table and that. He's, he's always looking at things. He quizzical, inquiring mind with great observation. Humble flowers, wasn't it, as well? Like field flowers and cow parsley and dead flowers, flowers that were dying and decaying. Yes, he, he made a point of the, the sadness of a decaying flower. But one of my favourite jewels, which is, uh, he made a jewel for a grand woman's neck out of a sprig of ivy and its roots. The ivy has two leaves and the root, the little bulb, and then the roots trailing down. And he made that a work of art. Nobody else would have the guts to present that. But it's just a little sprig of English ivy. Was that enameled? Golden enamel. But yeah, and green enamel for the leaves and brown enamel on the stem. Just remarkable. That's, you know, that's confidence. He was very well connected. He knew and he was a good friend of Clemenceau and he kind of belonged to all the right clubs and he had um, a dinner on a Wednesday night where he invited the sort of literary glitterati and the politicians of the time. And he was actually became 
a state-sponsored artisan. Clemenceau supported Monet in fine art and Rodin in uh, sculpture, but the third leg of the stool was decorative art, and that was René Lalique, who produced jewellery and bronzes, you know, bronze sculptures as well. Um, but he was well supported, and there's connections between Monet and, and Lalique. And he actually married the head of the chef d'atelier, the head of Rodin's um, atelier, craftsman, a man called Ledru. He married his daughter. So they were, there was a very close family connection between the, the atelier de Rodin and the atelier de Lalique. And, uh, you know, the, he actually stated policy, the way that French decorative art ought to, pro, you know, progress. And he was the voice that gave the politicians the, the review of which way should French fine art move and decorative art move. So he was a, you know, he was an important figure in uh, French political and creative life. And how did he feel it should move? Did he think it should be more integrated into all the different arts together and have equal importance? He was a very patient man. He thought that French decorative art should move gradually, not radical change. Although he made radical change. Yeah, he did, but he thought that that was, I think he thought that was enough. <laughs> but no one could come after him and make radical change. Yeah, well, he, he was also a pretty good businessman too. <laughs> but he thought progression. Um, and he was in writing as saying, you know, we should proceed with, you know, with evolution. But yeah, he had already made the radical change, which honestly, when you look at these encrusted jewels, these heavy diamond encrusted jewels, Boy, did it need it. And when you look at what he produced, it was such a refreshing change. Actually refreshing and beautiful, but not easy to wear. People say that, and you had, I guess you have to suffer for your art a little. Um, the corn, the horn rather, is, is not that heavy, whereas the jewellery needed reinforcements. You know, they were so heavy you needed to reinforce the back of them. But, uh, yeah, not that easy. And the scale of Lalique's jewellery is enormous. It's very big. It's, you, you, mm. you, sometimes you say, I have no idea it was that big. And the, the collier are big. Um, but they did wear them. It was a statement. And it was the period of the events um, at the opera. I mean, he, he was uh, involved with Diaghilev not only in a very important exhibition uh, in, in, in Russia, but uh, there's no doubt in my mind that he was at the opening of all these important uh, Ballet Rouge events in, in that the caught Paris by storm and really later on gave, uh, gave birth to another style, which was the birth of Art Deco later on. But it was the, the origin of that is the Ballet Rouge. But I think half the reason that Art Nouveau fell out of favour was because it didn't really go with the style that women began to wear. Exactly. And I think was... that really was its demise, wasn't it? But let's talk a bit more about Adam, as you were saying, the unusual materials that he used. Because you've talked about horn, but he, he was a great fan of opals, wasn't he? And moonstones and things with sort of that shimmery way to create an atmosphere in a jewel. Yeah, I mean, very much. I mean, he would choose a material which would mimic the realism of the piece itself. So, And I don't think it really mattered exactly which material it was. Um, it could be a moonstone, um, which, you know, it, it's, it's not considered a precious stone. Boulder opal, opal. 
aquamarines, it, it, all sorts of different materials. But as long as it gave the effect that he needed for his piece of jewellery, he would use it. He would probably just use a polished pebble if he really had to. Yeah. And he probably did. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, it was as simple as that. Um, there the, was the occasion when he would use diamonds, obviously, or but you'd, you'd find wonderful citrines or yellow sapphires, and and it, 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 I don't think it really mattered to him. No, he, he, I know there's a little quote that I know a jeweler enamoured of opals, which is a kind of play on enamel and opals. Right. But he also carved opals, which is a very rare and difficult concept. Yeah. And I think he bought a lot of his uh, fine stones from a, a little town in Germany, which is still producing great rarities and work. If it served his purpose and gave him the inspiration, he would use anything. He was quite capable. And he, he had people providing new technologies, new, you know, new ideas, new colours, new, new skills to him. And he, he used aluminium. He was what, I've had sold pieces of aluminium works of art Aluminium was a fortune at the time. It was, it was, it cost, it's written, it cost more than gold, you know. Really? So he would use, he would use aluminium because it was a new material. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really adventurous use of materials. And he experimented with glass, obviously, didn't he? Glass moulds and... He couldn't resist it. There was a material that gave him the facility to create basically anything he wanted with colour, texture, shape. shape, form. And he developed, he moved a technique from bronze casting, it's called sear perdu, which means lost wax, and he adapted it to glass. And with that, you know, the, the world became, you know, the, the glass world became very available to him. And the plique jour he used a lot, didn't he, for the um, the wings of dragonflies or butterflies or his hybrid creatures. And they, they're almost um, transparent, aren't they? I actually had in those notebooks was a few notes about his observance of stained glass, right? So he's yeah. sitting in a church looking at stained glass and he's noting down how different colours interact with each other and how like you know if a blue next to an orange does this and then two an orange and a red next to that does this his ability to observe and talk about color and its effect on it is extraordinary i've never seen an artist so eloquently write about how he saw the different effects between the colours. And it's at the time of Chevrolet's colour theories. And there, there, there were, there's a couple of people looking at colour theories and how different colours work next to each other. And that's really the origin of Surratt's pointillism. You know, you, these little dots next to each other of colour produce different colours. So he was really up to speed with what was going on with modern art as well. I mean, he was right up there. He was right in the thick of it. And stained glass became a big thing, didn't it, at that time with the arts and crafts movement and the Art Nouveau movement? Yeah, I mean, he, he obviously, he, he went to school in England, um, but he, he obviously read Mort Duffer, Tennyson's Mort Duffer, and he had this, a, a real passion for the Renaissance, romantic Renaissance a, a period. And he did a lot of these Renaissance dressed, um, you know, knights with on horseback, uh, jousting 
I mean, he was, in real terms, he was kind of ahead of the game. He, I mean, some of his images are more Tolkien. Um, you know, the two knights jousting and, and they're on sea creatures, you know, it's extraordinary thing. Yeah, he did have that imagination and all the women who hybrided into these sort of creatures that weren't identifiable. And he was very fortunate. He was a great businessman, but he got Gulbenkian, Kalus Gulbenkian, who was the wealthiest man in Europe. Mm-hmm. He was nicknamed Mr. 5%. He, he was a, a petrochemist and he took 5% from every refinery uh, that was using his process. Uh, so he's enormously wealthy. He did the most extraordinary... He got Lalique to design his apartment, and pull, pull, you know, wow. which was unbelievable. And that allowed him to... And propelled him into producing architectural glass. But Gulbenkian could fund and did... Anything, anything that Lalique could imagine. He commissioned like hundreds of jewels. Yeah, I mean, it's. Him. I mean, I think he, whether he commissioned them or bought them or when they were made, I'm not sure of that. But sort um, of a real patron in. Uh, a, 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 a probably the finest patron in Europe at the time, and his collection in Lisbon is just extraordinary. The photographs of the collection in situ in this apartment is mind bending. So, are there still there a lot of images of the apartment and how Lalique designed it for? Gulbenkian. There's a few. They're not many, but a it few. is pretty. And what was it like? What was it like? Uh, large, breathtaking. Had a veranda and a kind of open area with glass panels behind a, a Lalique fountain of glass and you know a, a pool on the top floor. I and mean, it's right. It's if the photograph of it, you can see Gulbenkian's uh, apartment and and the, the pool and the foot of the Arc de Triomphe there. It was it was pretty... He could afford anything he liked, you know. I mean, often people say that that's one of the greatest jewels ever made, the dragonfly in the Gulbenkian Museum with uh, sort of the plicageur wings. Do you, do you think that is? Show me something better and I'll take a review, but at the moment it's the best, yeah. you know. You think that's the best? Yeah. Not just of Lalique's. No, of any nothing jewel. to touch nothing. Well, there's a mukha um, bracelet, bracelet snake, and snakes and, and a stuff. Ring. It's all one piece. It's all tied up. It goes right up your and right up the arm, which really, really kind of rivals it. So Mukha is one of the great artists who also went, did the Four Seasons. He was very influenced by that. And Mukha did a bronze of a, a woman with this incredible hair thing in gilt bronze, fantastic. And he was a friend of Lalique's. I mean, he was because he was the great supporter of, of and Sarah Bernhardt was his patron, and great supporter. They all knew each other. Montesquieu was a part of his of um, Bernhardt's entourage. He famously said he had rings, all Lalique's, you know, on his fingers. He was a dandy and this, that, and the other. So he was really well connected to all the all the glitterati of the time. Um, but yeah, he he was a brilliant businessman. I mean, he and, and then hence his transference. That's to unusual, glass. isn't it, to have that design and creativity and be a good businessman? It is unusual. I mean, I think he had a very determined mother um, that want you know wanted to pushed him in many directions, not all with great results. But he 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 did. He had his eye for the main chance, and the, he he was the first person to produce decorative glass vases, and all the early ones are absolute masterpieces. I mean, Gulbenkian saw them and said, these are incredible, you know, give me more, give me more, and he got a lot. But then he went from this very expensive process of producing one-off pieces into commercial production, which 
opened up a market and he had a huge success as a glass artist and many imitators, you know, Gallet was doing okay, Lalique did better. Coming back to the drawings, I look at some of the drawings and there's that necklace of the nine roses, oh, nine roses, <laughs> which is, oh my God, I wish I'd, I, I don't know if that, I'd have to look and check and see if that was actually produced or we know where it is. I'd love to see that. Yeah. We have a handbag with a spider, yeah, that's which fantastic. is just phenomenal. There's a few surprises oh, yeah. once in a while. And it's kind of curious, I, the orchid um, necklace that I, I had suddenly turned up at Sotheby's, but it wasn't quite what you expected. So you could right. have missed it. But like, hang on, I know that. That's the orchid necklace. And there, yeah, there it was, but it was different. The other thing about his technology and the other piece that gets as much publicity as that is actually the cockerel's head from the 1900 yeah. exhibition, which has this massive, and they called it, it's, <laughs> it's businessman again, they called it a yellow diamond, right, at the 1900 exhibition that this cockerel is holding in its, its beak, mouth. this yellow diamond. It, if it was a yellow diamond, it would be earth-shattering. It's not. <laughs> it's an irradiated um, citrine. So it's like treated, like a heat-treated or with irradiation, um, using the most avant-garde technology, which was just discovered, which involves burying it with radium salts, so it changes colour. I mean, it's so far-fetched. But yeah, in, it worked for a flagship piece for the 1900 exhibition. And it's on the cover of every book. It's, right. you know, it's really well known. But it was some odd chance that made me understand, because that cannot be a yellow diamond. You know, there isn't one in the world that's that big. And it wasn't. But business is business. You say it's a yellow diamond and, you know, more people come to see it. So, in fact, if anyone's sitting on a Lalique piece, they should have a look at these drawings because they may be able to match their piece to one of the drawings. That would be really wonderful. To have both would be... You, you move it from a, a piece of, you know, jewellery to a museum exhibit, you know. It yeah. says a lot. And there's a lot of small museums that love to have something like that. So, after the First World War, he really... Um, turned entirely to working glass, didn't he, as you were saying, the glass objects. Are you intrigued by those as much as the drawings? Uh, I, I've traded Lalique for, you know, for, for 20 years, and I still trade, you know, his glass works. Uh, and I really do understand and see the change. I've had the fortune to be able to see moving from Cire Perdue, from the aluminium and blow glass to Cire Perdue, to commercially produced glass, to clear glass, you know, from clear glass to then case glass in different colours and triple case glass. I mean, he was extraordinarily talented and he used methods of, you know, pressing both, using moulded glass on both sides. So... One's got intaglio moulding on the back and then it's proud on the front. So you get this depth of things. So And, and mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. you've really got to go around all the museums, the Musée des Arts Décoratifs, and then you start to see technologies and things that you just hadn't even thought of. Uh, I remember asking the curator at the Musée des Arts Décoratifs with a fellow colleague, we've been scratching our heads, how did you do that? How did you do that? You know, you ask the curator, he said, oh, you make the piece on silver, you do all this, and then you dissolve the silver away. The gold is acid-proof, right? But the silver is eaten away by acid. So you dip it and leave it in an acid bath, and then eventually take it out, and presto, you're just left with the enamel and gold. 
and you have this pleasure of ours. I mean, it you know, I didn't. The concept is so wacky and wild that I hadn't, yeah. couldn't see it, couldn't fathom it. Do you have any tips if people um, want to start collecting something specific? I mean, what would be your tip to them? Condition is important. Getting the right advice, doing your homework, and fortunately now there are so many books on Lalit. You can judge, you can see it, and also there's the internet, God forbid. But you can see what you know, what the you can take a view over, say, ten vases, and make sure you're buying the ones that the shape is correct, hasn't missing its foot or its neck is thin or something. But yeah, I mean, it's a much safer place today. And you can, markets are like anything. They have their ups and downs. You know, it goes up and down. But it's a pretty, his great glass is a pretty sound bet. Freddie Mercury's blue alicante made a price that we're all still talking about. I mean, it was just an incredible price. £80,000 for a vase that is... You know, not that uncommon, but it was Freddie's. But you have the provenance as well. Exactly. Freddie Mercury. I mean, that was just just extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, early he, he obviously had a good eye. He loved Japanese things. Lalit really understood Japanese things. Clemence, and I'm sure that influence from, from Clemenceau, because he was a great Orientalist, and you know, he had opportunity. And the, some of the forms of uh, Lalit are from the Oriental forms, you know. So mm-hmm. he had access. Yeah, sort to- of asymmetrical, curvaceous forms and simplicity of line. I yeah, guess, I mean, the simplicity well. of line, and also cutting in on black glass. He had just cut the design of a cockle in, and then it's just very simple. But it 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 really is. It's it's very powerful. And I guess that's why his sketchbooks in Tokyo in the museum they must love his work oh they did I mean there were before I did the first glass exhibition in in Tokyo I think it was 82 or 83 uh, 82 83 there had been lovely jewelry exhibitions um and the you know the oriental mind really appreciated the designs and this that and the other because the the wood block prints is where you know a lot of French art of the period and then you know came from I mean that's well documented that they, the art and people like Van Gogh and uh, Maurice Denis were taking, taken by the woodblock designs of Hokusai and Mangia. You know, they, they, they really knew what they were doing. And so, in, you know, a hundred years later, the Japanese were fascinated by it. And I'm sure the Chinese, once they get there, they will also appreciate it because they love their peaking glass. And that's all that is, is a copy. And the colours are a copy of Lalique's work. I saw a quote from Gulbenkian that um, said, I feel I am absolutely convinced that justice has not been done to him yet, to Lalique. He ranks amongst the greatest figures in the history of art of all time, and his masterful touch, as well as his exquisite imagination, will excite the admiration of future cognoscenti. Do you think he's had enough recognition? When I first started uh, in the 70s, people thought I was rather eccentric because it was kind of used glass. Uh, I'm, I'm the son of a glass collector, so I kind of had a bit of a better take on it. I mean, I have a library of books. With, you know, I've probably got about six um, feet of library catalogues downstairs. So it's been well exposed. And, and you know, that there are museums. I think there's, you know, three or four, you know, including the Gulbenkian. The one there's two in Japan. 
You know, there's the one in Alsace-Lorraine. The V&A has got a marvellous collection of, uh, of Lalique. I mean, it's not huge, but it's very fine. The Musée des Arts Décoratifs. He has, of course, yeah. Uh, um, they have a great collection. I think he's well known. I mean, his name is... I don't kind of say, oh, I, 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 you know, I'm an expert on Lalique. I don't get, ooh, <laughs> very often. I get, oh, <laughs> I didn't get ooh, I get oh. Um... So it's it's well understood. It is well known. I mean, especially amongst anybody who has a real interest in twentieth century art, he's really well known. So and it's like it's, I think he writes as with the Cleveland Museum. It's Tiffany, Lalique, and Fabergé. Bonk, bonk, bonk. You know, they they're at that level. And the exhibit that exhibition which I had lent to and we went to the opening of it was phenomenal. And some of the designs that Adam's showing also were exhibited at the Cleveland Museum. Yeah. And so how can you bear to let these drawings go? I've owned them for a considerable amount of time. I love them, but it's time for them to move on. Do you want them to go in one group? That would be lovely and that would make real sense. But, um, you know, I, I'd like people who have the jewel or have an interest. I mean, I have done 47 years in the Lalique trade. No, it's more. It's 51 years. So, um, but I love it. And I was very thrilled um, that Adam saw, you know, saw the opportunity to show these. He knows the background a lot, you know, from a long time ago well, and he understood them. The connection between Fabergé and Lalique is very strong. And uh, it's, it's a pleasure to show them working with a company like that. It's no small thing, so I'm grateful for the opportunity. But I wonder if people think of him as a jeweller or as a glassmaker. You see, this is where it differs. I, I definitely am in the jewellery side of things. I mean, we personally, we don't do anything with the glass, and that's just because that's just not what we're involved in. It's but if you said to the man on the street, who is Lalique? They probably would think of him as more of a glass mm. maker. I would have thought, for the sort of layman necessarily. I think you say Lalique. I think they would think glass as opposed to jewellery. Do you think they might think of this modern store that lingers on? One of the things that I've noticed, and I noticed a long time ago, the companies that are still putting their name out, that are still publicising things, that still have uh, galleries and street presence, they're still spending money at the time on printed advertising, like Tiffany, Fabergé and Lalique. They had much more public awareness. And Lalique was, is still spending a lot of money on glossy magazines and in PR promoting the name. So, and I have met people who said, oh, you mean there was a founder of the Lalique company? You know, like, they oh. They had no idea. They had no yeah. idea, but it, that's yeah. less now. And the, the, the company does a good uh, and a wise investment in promoting the, the, the lineage of their company. You know, this is French luxury goods vehicles. These are big companies. You know, it's, yeah, yeah. But do you think it's odd that some of these companies that have this name that actually bears no resemblance to the, the history of the beginning? I just think it's just a progression of time. I mean, you know, it, it's, you're still talking about 80, 100 years ago. I mean, you, you, there's been such an evolution in, 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 the, in the companies over that amount of time and people's tastes have changed. And, Lifestyles, how they live. They wouldn't be able to wear these things, would they? Right, that, that's uh, also a very good point. Mark, I, I didn't ask you earlier, in all your research and, and doing your optical research as well, going to places where Lalique went and sleeping in the bed where he died... Um, did you find anything that hadn't been documented? Was there anything that surprised you? Um, I 
I've sold some really extraordinarily rare odd things, things from the house. Curious things that you know, it, you feel it's a Lalique design, but then it's made by a different cabinet maker. Uh, and you go, oh, that's weird. And it's got the handles that match the chandelier, but it's made by a different craftsman. Uh, the, th the thing was that Lalique gave instructions to different top craftsmen to make things so that for the interior of his house, massive chandeliers and, and wall brackets and stuff, which were, some of them were made by his um, firms, but others were made by different companies. So I have found desks and bookcases and things from his home which are fabulous. And I found things that were never kind of commercially productive. You know, there was so much work to make that um, they weren't commercially viable. But bronze frames with glass, Sierpeadu glass panels of angels singing, you know, with, in, hidden through a, a haze of reality. Do you think there's a sleeping beauty somewhere if we all went antiquing? Do you think we might find a sleeping beauty? I'm absolutely sure of it. I mean, I, that's how, to be honest, that's how sometimes we make a, make a living. Uh, things turn up on in, you know, rare opportunities. I mean, I don't know. Five, from the strangest places. From the strangest places. There was a beautiful jade cover, pot and cover that turned up in an ethnographic dealer's estate in Brussels three or four years ago. Marvellous thing with two peacocks in cut jade yeah. pot. Beautiful thing. And we tried for that, didn't buy it. I mean, it's very tough and I got some great clients, but, you know, you, you triple the estimate and, you know, you still don't get it. It's tough, um, but I I don't think you can give up because everything you do manage to get, if you're fortunate enough to get some interesting things, are really are rarer and rarer. There is a law of diminishing returns. There are not that many left, and um, sadly, you know these they also things actually get broken, um, and stolen, stolen. Yeah, no, that's that's yeah. another terrible thing, you know. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for sharing this sort of combined 80 or nearly 100 years of research about Lalique's life. Thank you very much, Mark. My and pleasure. thank you, Adam. I'm, glad, That's I'm my pleasure. glad you have the interest to do this. He really is a major figure, and I'm glad you're following up on that. Thank you for listening. For more information about this and other episodes of If Jewels Could Talk, please go to our website, carolwalton.com slash podcasts. Share it any way you can, and we love to have a rating and a comment. Now, we also have a brand new YouTube channel, so you can join us there. You can listen to episodes on the YouTube channel. And I promised my New Year's resolution was to get better at posting pictures. So we'll have some little films and pictures and images of the jewellery we talk about on the YouTube channel. So join us there. And please join us again in two weeks for the next Jeweled Nugget when I will be in Los Angeles at the Natural History Museum. And I'll be looking at huge gemstones over 100 carats. So join me then. And thank you for listening. Bye-bye. If Jewels Could Talk with Carol Woolton is produced by Natasha Cowan, music and editing by Tim Thornton, graphics by Scott Bentley, illustration by Geordie Labanda. You can find our sponsors at foolygemstones.com and me at carolwoolton.com. Hold up. 